engine that Moses brought down off of Mount Horeb. No, I'm kidding. I have the Legacy Standard. It's kind of like the NASB on steroids. It's pretty cool. So we're going to read verses 1 through verse 11, respectively, and then I'm going to really be teaching more on verses 5 through 8. Yep. Just waiting for Cheryl to get us all up. Good. We're good? Okay, Romans chapter 5. If you're listening along around the world, we're in chapter 5, Romans. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to, uh, I'm going to dig in and start teaching on verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> so follow along with me. Therefore, having been justified or made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our affliction knowing that affliction brings about perseverance. Verse 3 and 4, really pay attention. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not put to shame. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out or literally gushed out within our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit, who was, what does it say? Given to us. For while we were still weak, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me, that's you. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, somewhat would dare even to die. Look at verse 8. But God, Nuni Day, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then. Again, look what he says in verse 9, almost a repeat. Having now been justified in his blood. Do you see that, church? In his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It doesn't say we're saved from hell. That's the destination. God, through his son's blood, is saving us from his own wrath through Christ. For if, for if while we were yet enemies, <clears throat> we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. As long as Christ lives, we live. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That is a chapter, those verses there you should highlight underline, put stars around, 
you pretty much have the gospel right there in those verses. So let's go to slide four. Let's, let's dig in, kind of do a little review of what I taught last time we were together. Romans 5.5, 5, And hope does not disappoint, or hope does not put to shame, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And so, slide five, the New Living Translation. And this hope will not disappoint. Why? Because the agape, the love of God, literally the, the Greek there has the idea of being lavished or gushed out. And the destination of where it's being gushed out is where? Into our what? Hearts. There's the word cardia. How? It's through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And you see the word elpis here. We're going to look at that word hope, and we're going to also look at the word disappoint as we kind of dig into this text here. So keep that up for a minute. So hope, it does not put to shame. Last time we were together, we dug into that word hope because we wanted to understand what did Paul mean when Paul used the word there. And again, the Greek word there, you can see is the word elpis. It, it means this. It means to anticipate. It, it has the flavor of an expectation. Um, hope, church, is a future certainty that gives you and I joy, peace, and patience in our present time here. The question you need to ask yourselves is this. If hope does not put us to shame, do you have that certainty of joy, peace, and patience in your present life today. I'm just preaching what the text says. So as you and I go through this furnace of affliction, it should encourage us that we belong to God. Slide six. He uses the word disappoint here. He says hope does not disappoint. Really the idea is the putting to shame. Uh, the King James actually does a great job of that. It uses those words, to put to shame. The idea of disappointment is to put somebody to shame or disgrace them. Now, in the preceding verses that we looked at, Paul had taught us that the trials and the tribulations that we go through have a purpose, and that is to bring about our perseverance, our ability to endure through them. And he talks about endurance and proving character and hope. Here Paul wants to make it very clear to us that the hope we have in God will never disappoint us. It will never disgrace you. It will never put you to shame. It will never dishonor you. You see, church, God never disgraces, nor does he dishonor his children. Don't ever forget that. Satan may want you to think that, but God never does that. And slide 7. We also looked at 2 Timothy 1, 2. Look at 2 Timothy 1-2. Paul writing says this, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. He also told us that in Romans 1-17, or 16, I think. I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day. In slide 8, I like the NLT. Paul says, that's why I'm suffering here in prison. I'm not ashamed that I'm suffering in prison. See, I, I know in the one whom I trust. 
church do you know and the one you trust? He says, I'm sure that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. So we learn that Paul wrote this letter while he was incarcerated. You know, you've got to remember the prisons back then were not like the prisons today. They didn't have air conditioning and heating systems. They didn't have cable TV. They didn't have private showers. You know, when Paul was penning this letter, he was chained to a guard 24-7. No privacy. The place stenched. There was no modern-day bathroom facilities. So he's writing in a pretty ugly place when he's penning this letter. just want to give you a little bit of, you know, a background on that. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. What's he telling us here? Church, Paul is telling us that he is in the midst of trials and tribulations. He's in a place where he could be called to death at any moment. He, he's in a place that brings ultimate humiliation. And yet he makes it clear. He says, listen, I'm not ashamed. He's not humiliated. He's not humiliated in his position or the calling that God has placed on him. Why? Paul understands that his suffering in prison, these trials and the pressures are caused because he is faithfully preaching the gospel. That's why he's there. <clears throat> he didn't rob a 7-Eleven. He didn't do anything. He's there because he was preaching the gospel, the EU Galeon. He's not in there because of sinful behavior. He's not in there because of wrongdoing. So keep that in mind. He also wants us to understand that our suffering should not be considered unusual. Hear me this morning. This is important. And Dr. Carter and I can tell you this after doing over two decades of ministry. Ministry and suffering go hand in hand. Let me say that again. Ministry and suffering go hand in hand. They're riveted together. Put up slide nine. I wanted to ask you how you respond to suffering. So see if any of this resonates with you when you're suffering and you're going through it. Do you often put God on trial when things are going wrong in your life? You put him on trial. You know, God doesn't hear me. God doesn't, God hears you. He doesn't have hearing aids. He hears you. But how many of us blame God when things go wrong in our lives? I know you're all sanctified and you don't do that. That's okay. Do, do we accuse him? Of not hearing us? Do we hurl out profanity at him when things are really, really bad? It's quiet in here now, Dr. Carter. How often do we find ourselves blaming God, putting him on trial when things don't go the way that we think they should go? Oh boy. Ouch. Look at that list and ask yourself those questions. Do any of them resonate with you? See, slide 10. We learned that Paul, it was Paul's faithfulness to his calling that caused his circumstances, not sin. There's a big difference there. Can we make the distinction in our own lives because we suffer because of sin? Just so we understand, sin is anything we do that does not glorify God and breaks his law. Just keep that in mind. Sin is anything we do that does not glorify God and break his law. 
Uh, hopefully we can make the distinction, I'm suffering because I made bad choices, I did things that dishonored God, I broke the law. There's a difference between suffering for Christ and suffering because of that. There's a real difference between the two. Paul is not ashamed, nor does he feel let down by God. He doesn't feel disgraced by God. Instead, he even has more confidence in God. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. That's a really important question. That's the most important question you'll ever be asked in your lifetime. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God? Do you believe that he died on that cross to pay your sin debt in full? Do you believe that the only reason you will ever enter into glory is not because you earn it or deserve it, it's because of what he's already accomplished for you on that cross? Paul had intimate knowledge of God's, of his, of, of God. And it has grown out of his ongoing experience and his belief in him. And one of the things, when I'm thinking about this, if you want to hear from God, listen to what we've been telling you for 20 years. Open up your Bible. Don't sit there and go, God doesn't talk to me. He doesn't talk to me. No, no, he talks. You just closed him off when you shut your Bible down. That's how he speaks to us today through his word. You want to hear from him? If you want to hear him speak to you, stand there and read your Bible out loud. Okay? See, Paul knows full well that God is intimately involved in all aspects of his life. And he's intimately involved in yours as well. He is, church. And God's grace is so powerful that it triumphs over all of our sinfulness and it effectually draws us to Christ. So then, in Paul's mind, there's no separation in his belief or his confidence. How about you? Is there a separation between your belief and your confidence in God's power and ability? So as we kind of rivet this all together, we see that the person, now listen, the person who has their hope centered on Christ is a person who will not only overcome his trials and tribulations, this is a person that actually will boast in them because the person is fully convinced and knows that the Lord is there with them to see him through every one of those trials. Amen. Can that be said about you and I? Do we see how important this is? Church, hear me. And I know it's not easy. Through the trials and the adversities we go through, it, it, it really kind of opens up your mind. Listen, the trials and the adversities that you and I go through, it really opens up our heart and mind and it really gives us kind of like a, a bead on where we are in our relationship with the Lord. You know, I'll trust him this far, but man, not over here. You know, I have all these special boxes in my heart of all the different things I want. And God, you can have all this, but these boxes here, these are only for me. And we get in trouble every time. Hope makes us certain of where we're going when we die. That help us, that confident expectation. When you draw your last breath, do you have that confidence and hope in Christ of where you're going? 
Well, Pastor Jack, what is it that gives us this hope? What is it that gives us this ultimate assurance that never ceases? I'm so glad you asked that question. Do remember from our last time, Paul answers that question in verse 5. Because the agape toy, the, the love, the act of his will, the love of God, has literally been gushed out, and the destination of where that gushing out took place is in our hearts, and it was through God the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about it. God gave you himself. When Jesus went up, he says, I'm going to send you another parakletos, another of the very same kind who will be with you and in you. That's God the Holy Spirit who is a person. When you're walking around, if you're a true believer, you're not the only one that takes up residence in here. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Uh, Dr. Carter keeps getting quieter. I don't know. Listen, before we were saved, think about it, before when we were dead in our sins, living like the world, sucking down the booze, getting high, drunk, whatever, just living for self, before you and I came to faith in Christ and were saved, God loved us sinful, rebellious people so much, knowing we were going to all do that, that he gave his son to us anyway. We wouldn't do that, but he did. God takes the, this, the, his indescribable love and literally gushes it out within our hearts, the hearts of those who believe, through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. God implants evidence of himself deep within our hearts. And it is only because of the indwelling of the God, the Holy Spirit, that we are able to love him back. Think about it. Paul wants us to understand that it is God's love that's taking possession of us. Doesn't that fascinate you? Doesn't that blow your mind? I mean, think about it. When we look in the mirror, is there really anything lovable in us at all? I mean, we sin in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives every day. And in spite of that, he still loves us. He still has the patience, the macro, macro thameo. He has that patience with us. Hear me this morning. Your eternal security, my eternal security, does not rest in our ability to live a godly life. We could never be good enough to merit salvation on our own, as we've clearly been taught from the scriptures. But only in the power of God the Holy Spirit, in dwelling in you and I, are we able to live godly lives, because he empowers us to be able to do it. I know me well enough to know. If he wasn't indwelling me, I'd be living like the devil. The church, when we experience this awesome awareness that God is indeed our Heavenly Father, we can look at verses like Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. Slide 11 and 12. We want to back up everything we say with Scripture, because Scripture validates Scripture. The Bible is a self-authenticating book. It doesn't need us. But what does the Bible say? Capital S there. The Spirit himself. Yeah, the Spirit is a person, not a force. Testifies. With whose Spirit? Our Spirit. That we are what? The technons of God, the children of God. And if we are the children, heirs. Heirs of God. 
fellow heirs with, look at that, look at it, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, there's your hint of clause, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be what? Glorify with him. Put up slide 12. Let's see what it says in the NLT. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are God's children, we are heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Church, I know this is hard to believe. This is the highest, most powerful form of assurance a believer can attain or receive. The person who is not born again does not have that assurance. So Paul, knowing that his readers would want to better understand this, he tells us this in verse 6. Look at slide 13. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for who? Golly. Man, isn't the book of Romans an awesome book? I beg you and plead with you, get into the book. Paul is anxious. I can almost sense his anxiousness to expound on God's love for us. He, he's making it very clear that our salvation is never based on our love for God. If that were true, we'd be in trouble. Here, you know, God, God's patience is just immeasurable. Ours is not. He makes it clear here that it is God's love for us that really matters. While we were still helpless. What does it mean? Church, here he's speaking of the fact that you and I are ungodly and you and I are completely unworthy of his love. Please understand, we are unworthy of a church. He uses the word helpless. We are powerless on our own to escape sin. We are powerless on our own to escape death. And we are powerless on our own to resist Satan. And we are even powerless on our own to please God. And yet, he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and I. You know, back in chapter 3, Paul showed us how we are made right with God. Here, he wants us to show us God's love, his love for us. Slide 14. Now, some people look at this as a declaration. Some people look at it as an invitation. It's possible it can mean both. And it's all over a word called seismonoi, salvation. For God so loved the world, or it could be say because God so loved the world, he gave his monogenes, his only begotten unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I'm not going to get into the declaration and the invitation, but that's a very powerful verse to, to memorize. How about slide 15 to 16? What else does it say? Namely, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Slide 16. For God was in Christ, and I've taught on perichoresis before, 
God the Father is fully in Jesus, and Jesus is fully in God the Father. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Do we now, are we starting to understand that it has always been God's plan? Salvation is from the Father. It is he who sent his only unique monogenes, that's where we get the word unique from, son, to die for us. Man on his own is completely helpless, as Romans 5, 6 teaches us. But we've learned from the scripture, a payment has been made. A ransom has been paid. Do we see that? Jesus came to ransom us. He came and he paid our sin debt in full. So you and I who were slaves to sin have now been set free. Why do we not live that way if we're saved? Our redemption is only found in one person whose name is Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone and his finished work on that cross that purchased us and set us free. Christ and his cross. And if you're not in the church preaching that, run. Second thing he says, at the right time. What does he mean? He means that before the foundation of the world, before earth and time was ever created, before God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living soul, and before anything was ever created, God the Father planned salvation. You see, God knows the past, present, and future all at the very same time. He planned every detail and when it would occur. That is a statement there that speaks of God's sovereignty. The Father planned that at a given point in time, He would send His only unique Son to come in the world, clothe Him in frail humanity, have Him live, die on that cross, shed His blood to make atonement for our sin debt. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? I'm so glad you asked again. Slide 17 and 18. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The Son of God is also the Son of Man. Born under the law. Slide 18. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Well, I need more proof than that. Okay, I'll give it to you. How about slide 19 to 20? 2 Timothy 1, 9. Who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to whose purpose? His own purpose and grace which was granted in Christ when? Oh, there it is. From all eternity. Slide 20. God saved us, called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ. You need one more? Okay, I'll give you one more. Slide 21. How about Ephesians 1.4? Just as he chose us in him, when? Before 
the foundation of the world, that he would be holy and blameless before him in love. So this word chose here. The Greek word is actually in what we call the aorist tense, or in this case, it's in the past tense. But it's something else about this word, this word chose here. Not only is this word in the aorist tense, it's also in the middle voice. Well, what do I mean? And Dr. Carter's going to give you a full Greek teaching on this, don't worry. The middle voice indicates an independent choice that God made on his own. God wasn't conjured into it, wasn't forced in it. There was no backroom deals or arm twisting. God, of his own volition, of his own choice, made this determination, made this choice, this choosing. This choosing. It's something God has already did, Aris tense. But it's also a reflexive verb. It means that God also chose this for himself. You're the bride of Christ. Did you know that? For himself. I wanted to make sure we got that out. Before the foundation of the world. It is God alone who has designed his church, which is the body and bride of Christ. And he had this all designed, and it was good as it was already done before the world began. Before you and I, before anything was invented, before there was planets or solar system, God, see, here's the thing. God has always been. God is not a created being. He has always been, always will be. There's never a point in time, ever, that God has not existed. That's important that we know that. We are finite beings. He is an infinite being. Don't let any false prophet tell you differently either. The text is clear. In the Father's plan, His Son was to be crucified, and He made that decision before the world began. A little bit more proof text for that? Okay, slide 22. Look at this. He predestined us to adoption as sons. And he did it through Jesus Christ to himself. According to whose will? Oh, now you see that word predestined up there? Predestined us for adoption? There's through Christ Jesus, according to the intention of his will. So look at that word predestined up there. This is a word that creates all kinds of controversies in churches. Because it talks about election. And it gets everybody all up in arms. Oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to pray this prayer and I'm going to get saved today. It's all according to my plan. I'm desiring to do it. Well, if, if that would be true, then everything you just read was a lie. But look at the word predestined. It's actually two Greek words. Pro, which is the word, our English word for pro is before. Horizo, horizon, is to decide or determine. So, proizo is to decide or to determine beforehand. So, a destination or destiny was made for us to be adopted through Christ, beforehand. Okay? Slide 23. Here's another one. Make sure you read this because some people read it backwards. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. It's a small m. He's talking about worshiping the beast. And the rest of the sentence explains it. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's the beast. 
everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. Oh, I thought that was talking about Jesus. No. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. He's talking about the beast. Read the chapter. And he says, except or everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who had been slain. So there was a book. The book was written before the foundation of the world. Right? The names of those who are saved are recorded in that book. There's your text right there. So people that are not saved are going to be the ones that worship the beast. I know that's hard to fit in the ear, but that's what the text says. God already determined and made a decision beforehand. I know there's a lot of people that don't like that teaching, but I'm just telling you what the text says. It's hard to feel that this is fair. That's not fair, Pastor Jack. Well, fair would be we'd all be burning in hell for all eternity because every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't want fair. You, you want that. If you wanted fair, you wouldn't be alive. You'd be cooking in Satan's house down forever. The scriptures are clear. God knows and sees the end from the beginning all at the very same time. He already knew full well what he has chosen to accomplish because he is sovereign and we are not. So it is clear that Paul wants us to understand that God loves us. God loves us unconditionally. And he already chose to love us before he ever created us. It's hard to wrap your head around that kind of love, isn't it? God is very interested in every one of us. After all, he created you, and he created you for a purpose. And every day you are alive, one of the things that we all are guilty of, we don't treat every day we're alive as a gift from God, do we? Be honest, we don't. It's very easy that here's me, and I want everything to wrap around and do things the way I need them and want them to be done. I'm not even thinking about the fact that the only reason I'm alive and breathing is because of him. The other thing that's amazing is zillions of years before he created anything, he already entered our names into the Lamb's book of life before he ever created us. That blows my mind out the door. So it should be very clear to each of us that he has loved us with an everlasting love. Think about it. He loved you before he created you. Doesn't that blow your mind? Slide 24. What does 1 John 4 9 say? By this, the love of God was revealed or manifested in us. In us. Think about the text. Engage the text. I'm insignificant. Engage your mind and heart with the text. By this, the love of God was manifested or revealed in us. That God has sent his only begotten son, the unique one, the monogenes, into the world so that you and I might what? Live through him. Live through him. Slide 25. In the NLT, 
God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. So, jumping back real quick, we're almost done in Romans 5, 6. Paul's last statement, Christ died for the ungodly. Why do we need to emphasize this again? Christ died for the ungodly. Let that sink into your head for a minute. Why do we need to emphasize this? Because the church, hear me, this is how God showed and proved his love for us. Church, in order to save us, Christ died for us. He shed his blood for us. The very blood that ran in the veins of Jesus Christ was nothing other than the blood of God. That's why Jesus came into the world. It, what's fascinating to me is gazillions of years before anything was created, Jesus, because he is fully God, already knew this was going to happen. He knew there was a death sentence coming. Not, not 6, 10, or 15, or 20 years before. Not by a lethal injection where they put you to sleep and then you die. No. A brutal, brutal, brutal way to die. And he knew it long before he came to earth. Still came and did it. Slide 26. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. Paul's making a point here. What is he trying to say? Paul's saying, listen, it's uncommon for a person to sacrifice his life in order to save a person who is of good moral character, one who strives to live a righteous life. But it is even more uncommon and unusual for a man to die for a wicked person. For a wicked person. You see the contrast there? See, Paul brings this point out to help us see just how incredible God's love is for you and I. You know? Slide 27, 28. And here is, again, the gospel. Highlight this in your personal Bible. Circle it. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or slide 28, the NLT. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So, let me wrap this up. In view then of what we've been learning, it is my hope that we can begin to see how God's love for us is beyond our human understanding. Imagine with me for a moment a holy, pure, righteous, just God who hates, who hates every simple thought, word, deed, and action that you and I commit every day, in spite of all of it, still loves you and I. He sees that you and I, without him, are completely helpless. He knows how we have hated him, wanting to live our own way on our own terms, and yet we are still the objects of his grace and his redeeming love even though there's really nothing lovable about us at all. I know that's hard, as my father-in-law would say, to fit in the ear, but that's the truth. And yet, God shows his love for us in the death of his son. Not because we are lovable or righteous. In fact, if we're going to be honest this morning and come clean with God, we need to admit, we need to confess we are sinners. And a sinner is the exact opposite of a righteous man. 
We are sinners. Just think about the past week, how many sins we would commit. I mean, think about it. If we're making a beautiful omelet, and I hand you seven eggs, and I hand you the bowl to whip them up in, and six out of seven eggs are perfect, and the seventh egg is just rotted, and we put all the bowl together, I don't think you would eat it, would you? No. Think about a church. A sinner is the exact opposite of a righteous man. Well, where does it say that? I'm glad you asked again. Slide 29. Paul says, as it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is very much as important as the New Testament. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There it is, right there. Slide 30, Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are the people that Jesus Christ died for. We need to realize the sinfulness of sin. And sin's not an easy thing to preach on, but my job is to preach the whole counsel of God as well as Dr. Carter's, so I'm preaching it. We need to realize the sinfulness of our sin. Whether it's we're hurling out profanity, or we're angry and we're bitter, we're lying, whatever it is, we need to realize it. Only then can we realize the argument that Paul's making that God proves his love for us. While we were yet sinners, helpless, Christ died for us. While we were without strength, still ungodly and sinners, God the Father still sent his only son into the world to die a shameful and cruel death for you and I. I want you to take a quick look. We're just, and I'm going to finish up with this. Slide 31. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. And this is what Paul is writing to this church. He says, listen, you guys in Ephesus, he says, listen, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Your, that word walk is the word parapeteo. It means your way of life was that of a dead man. Physically alive, but spiritually a dead man. You were spiritually dead. Okay, Your way of life was following this world system that exalts itself up against God. And it's ruled by the prince of the power of the sons of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And Paul comes clean. He says, look, we too, we're guilty. We were all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We indulged in the desires of our flesh and sin and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. You see that? Physically alive, but spiritually dead, living in the way the world lives doing the things the world does that is antithetical to everything God stands for. But the beautiful part is what happens at the turning point, slide 32 and 33. Here's the turning point. Here's two words. Noony day, but God. He comes on the scene, boom. He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, that mega love, that great love, that overwhelming love, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He's the one that made us what? 
Alive with, how? Together with who? Grace. For grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him. And now look at verse 6. This also blows my mind. I don't deserve this. He raised us up with Christ, seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Honestly, we don't deserve that, do we? I don't. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. And then slide 33. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are not saved any other way. That's what it says. You are saved by grace, right? Through faith, not of yourselves. It is a what? Do you earn a gift or buy a gift? No, you don't. It's a gift from God. It's not the result of ergon or works. So no one's able to boast. For we are his poema. We are his workmanship. That's where we get the word poem from. We are this masterpiece that was created in Christ Jesus for good works. When did God prepare that? When? Oh, beforehand. That our way of life would be in them. We don't do good works to get saved. We do them because we are saved and we want to glorify God and we want to put Christ on display in the lives of the people he brings into our life. Let me finish here. We're all born spiritually dead, church. We do not make ourselves spiritually alive. We do not become spiritually dead because of sin. We are born with a sin nature that we inherited. That progeny has been handed down from Adam and Eve all the way down to us and any of our grandchildren and other children. So you don't become spiritually dead. You were born physically alive and spiritually dead. And that is the condition of every human being since the fall of mankind in the garden. A person is spiritually dead while he or she is physically alive. And because he or she is dead in their sins and trespasses, this person has a dead spiritual life, is alienated from God, and has no capacity on his own to respond. A person cannot bring himself back to life again. A person does not become a liar because he tells a lie. No, he tells a lie because he's always been a liar. Committing sinful acts does not make you and I a sinner. Each of us commits sinful acts because we're already sinners. You know, I told this story before. My son Gabriel, when he was a little kid, it's about 30 minutes before supper. My wife's got the Oreos, double stuffed, on the shelf. And I hear Lynn going, now, now Gabe, we call him the chicken, but don't let him tell you that. Gabe, don't eat the cookies because we're going to be having dinner in 30 minutes. Okay, Mommy, I'm not going to. Next thing you know, you hear the chair scratch off the floor. Thump, up, grabs the cookie. Evidence all over his face. Gabe, did you eat the cookie? No, Mommy. Oreo double stuffed all over the place. You see, we didn't send Gabe at four years old to go to school to learn how to be a liar. Or me or you. We were born with a sin nature. We don't become sinners. We are sinners because we were born with a sin nature. 
But God, who is rich in mercy towards us, His love for us is unlimited. The Father's desire is for you and I to have a relationship with Him, but a restored relationship. So the Father provided a way for you and I to have that relationship restored with Him. He offers forgiveness and reconciliation to those sinners who repent. He knows who we are. He already knows what we've done. And he knows what you're going to do tomorrow and the next day. But because of his great love and mercy for us, he had the penalty that our sin debt accrued paid for with his son's own precious blood. The judgment against you and I has been fully satisfied, not partially, fully satisfied through Christ. There is absolutely no other way. Don't let any false prophet tell you there's another way. You don't earn your salvation. The only way your sin debt judgment is satisfied is through the shed crimson blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. And the way you receive it is by placing your faith and trust in Christ and what he's accomplished for you. That's the only way that your sin and my sin can be satisfied. So a person who is dead in their sins needs to be made alive, and that is exactly what salvation brings to a dead sinner. When a person is born again, they are no longer alienated from the life of God. We become spiritually alive through our union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Well, where does it say that? This is our last slide, slide 34. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, and future, is 100% paid for with the crimson blood of Christ. That word new has the idea of a fresh new quality. Listen, when you're a Christian, there's a fresh new quality that has been given to every believer. And your life now reveals your identification with Christ. So here's the question as I close. Does your life reveal that you are identified with Jesus Christ? If you were to drop dead today, if you were to lose your life today, a little over a week ago, a 17 and 18-year-old boy woke up in Pottstown, just like you and I, showered, brushed their teeth, had their breakfast, went about their day, early that afternoon, shot dead. They did not know when they woke up this morning that that day would be the last day they would be alive on earth. You don't know when your last day is going to be. Do not toy with your soul. If you sense the Holy Spirit waking you up right now, you sense him speaking into your heart that what we've learned from these scriptures is truth, my encouragement to you is to surrender your life to Christ as he has been freely offered to you in the gospel. You don't know when you're going to pass away. You just don't know. It could be this afternoon, tomorrow. When you die and you stand before God, are you going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into? Or you're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Which are you going to hear? There's only one way into glory, and that is through the crimson blood of Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning.
close your eyes. If you were to drop dead this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, and you were standing in front of the beam of seat of God, and God looks straight in your face and he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? I want you to think about what your answer would be. If you think your answer was, you know, I'm a good person, I do good things, that ain't going to work. Well, I give money to the church, that's not going to work. Well, I, I help people, that's wonderful, but that's not going to work. I want you to think about your soul right now. You probably don't give a whole lot of thought to your soul. I'm asking you to think about it right now. Have you, eyes closed, this is between you and the Lord. Forget me, I'm insignificant. Have you come clean with God about your sin? Lord, I'm boozing it up all the time. I'm sucking the booze down. I'm sucking the drugs down. I'm getting high. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm laying with somebody I'm not married. I don't know. It could be a million different things. Have you confessed your sin to the Lord? Have you come clean with him? You know you're ready when your mouth is stopped and you realize there's no act that you can produce on your own to make yourself right with God. You cannot do it on your own. You just read it. You listening around the world, I'm asking these questions to you right now. This is important. We're in the last days, church. We are in the very last days. He could come at any time. This is not a time to be toying with sin and playing games with God. This is serious business. If you were, I could feel the Holy Spirit like an anvil here right now. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Think about it. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you confessed your sin to him? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you even know who he is? Many will leave the church and go out living the same way they're living right now. People around the world will go out living the same way, shacking up, doing things, getting high, getting drunk, trying to make excuses for it. <clears throat> Excuses aren't going to get you into heaven. There's no backroom deals with Jesus. There's no striking bargains. There's no behind-the-door closed little conferences. If you die today in your sin, you burn in hell for all eternity. That's just as clear and as plain as I can make it to you. But if you surrender your life to Christ, if you come clean with him, and you ask him to forgive you for the sin that you've committed against him, not lip service asking, but sincerely with a contrite heart, grieving over your sin, ask him to forgive you. And you call out to him to save you. He will. And Father, I pray for everyone here this morning. Now is the time for them to get right with you, Lord, that you would speak mightily into their hearts and they would confess their sins and place their faith and trust in you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Meet and greet each other.